A quick content warning. This podcast includes adult language and deals with difficult themes that include sexual assault and sexual harassment. One more thing, we are approaching the part of the story that concerns allegations that multiple survivors made regarding the sexual misconduct of Harry Knowles. At the request, we've chosen to alter each survivor's name unless they instructed us to do otherwise. Now let's start the show. I'm going to start this episode by playing three different audio clips that, as far as internet movie geek culture is concerned, truly set the stage for the year 2017. One clip comes from a movie. One clip comes from reality. And the final clip is a combination of the two. Okay, so I don't know if it was a race thing or a lady thing, but I'm mad as hell. Pick me up! All right, put me down. That's a scene from the 2016 remake of Ghostbusters, featuring Saturday Night Live actress Leslie Jones. It's not uncommon for internet movie geeks to respond poorly to remakes of beloved films, especially when they haven't even bothered to see them yet. Bashing unreleased remakes was almost a pastime for internet movie news websites like Ain't It Cool News. The website once famously led a war on the 2004 remake of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. James Gunn, who wrote the script for the remake, said the online fervor led by Ain't It Cool News resulted in a petition against the film with hundreds of thousands of names on it. Via Twitter, James said he even received death threats. Ain't It Cool News was extraordinarily powerful back then. Like, imagine 90% of all fan sites combined into one, and studios were terrified of their negative assessment of something, and they led the warpath. They were so powerful that when the boss and main guy at Ain't It Cool News, Harry Knowles, who had been spearheading the anti-Dawn remake fervor, uh, himself read the script and said it was great, most of the turmoil died down and my life became normal again. Even with the aforementioned death threats, the online discord surrounding the remake of Ghostbusters managed to be far less civil. The reason for that is simple. The 2016 Ghostbusters was more than just a remake. It was a redefinition. It was a redefinition of who gets to be a hero in a big budget studio film. The original Ghostbusters depicted a team of what could best be described as paranormal exterminators, all of whom were exclusively male. Women were cast only as supporting characters. This new film took those gender dynamics and flipped them upside down. And whether or not they will admit it, it's because of this redefinition that the movie ticked off a lot of fans of Ghostbusters. And by fans, I almost exclusively mean fanboys. Some of these fans even led a social media campaign against the movie stars. And when they came for Leslie Jones, who is black, the comments from these fans quickly veered from misogyny to straight up racism. Those are people who weren't thinking in terms of like feminism or like, you know, good treatment of women. That's Billy Donnelly, AKA the infamous Billy the Kid, who worked for Ain't It Cool News until he was unceremoniously fired by Harry Knowles. By the time the remake of Ghostbusters came out, he was working for a new internet movie news site called JoeBlow.com. He actually butted heads with the editor of that site over this film. According to Billy, the editor wanted everyone who wrote for Joe Blow to toe the line that the new Ghostbusters was an outrage. Billy disagreed with this stance. 
seeing seeing fans' reactions to the idea that like women were going to be cast as Ghostbusters, like how dare they do this? You know, and I heard all the arguments about like race swapping and gender swapping and like, and so they're still holding on to these things as like they have to be the way that they always, they, the way that they, I know them as, and they can't ever change. But whether or not these white male internet movie geeks were ready, change was coming. In large part because of this next clip. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> do anything. Most people probably recognize this audio. Unfortunately, it's not from a movie. It's a tape of real-life former U.S. presidential nominee and former president Donald J. Trump bragging about how he liked to sexually assault women. When this tape was released, many assumed it would lead to Trump being disqualified from presidential office. As we all know now, that's not exactly how things went down. I think that there was a sense of utter disbelief that an individual who had said and done the things that he had done, um, so explicitly sexist and so explicitly misogynistic, could be elevated to the presidency. That's Brenda Cosman, a law professor at the University of Toronto and author of the fantastic book, The New Sex Wars. She says that when this audio leaked, it outraged and activated women to create the online formations of what would become the hashtag MeToo movement. That then just leads literally to this, you know, massive eruption of anger that was already there, right? It didn't come out of nowhere, like it was already there. The election of Trump was sort of a, you know, a real thumb on the scale of this, I think is, is you know, incontrovertible. This is all debatable, but it's very likely that the first person to be impacted by the Me Too movement was actually a leading member of the Internet Movie Geek community, a writer and editor by the name of Devin Faraci. When the Trump tape was first released, Devin responded on Twitter by saying, The most telling thing about the Trump tape? He wasn't talking with his best friends. He was boasting to a TV host. At this time, Devin was editor-in-chief of Birth Movies Death, a website that was then owned by Tim League and his Austin, Texas-based Alamo Draft House. And with this tweet, the writer seems to be implying that while it's unthinkable to discuss sexually assaulting women with TV hosts, it's perfectly fine to discuss behavior like this with friends. This is probably why, shortly after writing this post, a woman film critic who for the purposes of the story we will call Caroline, responded to this post by accusing Devin of doing just that. Quick question. Do you remember grabbing me by the pussy and bragging to our friends about it, telling them to smell your fingers? When Caroline shared this allegation, the Alamo Drafthouse responded by terminating Devin from his job immediately. Or so we thought. All of which leads us to this final clip. What are those things? Bob ears. I've never seen a real one. Look, this whole place is beautiful. I mean, come on. Why'd you hate it so much? Look closer. As we mentioned earlier, the first clip was from a movie. The second clip was from reality. This clip comes from both things at once. 
It's from Star Wars The Last Jedi. Released in 2017, one year after Trump was elected into office, the film was divisive among Star Wars fans. And that's putting it mildly. The 2016 Ghostbusters might have revealed a fissure that spewed toxic white male nerd rage into internet movie geek culture. But with Star Wars The Last Jedi, it was readily apparent that this fissure had completely erupted. With the casting of Asian-American actress Kelly Marie Tran as one of the film's major characters, an online mob of toxic fans took a lot of the sexist and racist tactics they used against Ghostbusters star Leslie Jones to the next level. They vandalized Kelly's character page on Wikipedia, a Wikipedia clone with a focus on Star Wars, and blasted her Instagram page with so many hateful remarks that in June of 2018, she deleted all of her entries and left that platform altogether. Because of the online discourse surrounding Star Wars The Last Jedi, it represents an embarrassing, ugly moment in the history of nerd culture. But there's a reason I say this clip is also from reality. It contains an audio recording of the 18th But Numathon, the 24-hour film festival created by Harry Knowles of Ain't It Cool News. The Overnight Film Festival was hosted on December 10, 2016 at the Alamo Draft House on South Lamar in Austin, Texas. For reasons we've mentioned previously, the clout and influence of both Knowles and his website were on the decline. Externally, the site was flagging behind new competitors to the internet movie Newsbeat, and internally, many longtime contributors to the site had departed with varying degrees of acrimony. And if we're giving out prizes for this, I would say that based on the interview he had with me, Jeremy Smith's departure might have been the most severe in this regard. Roland uh, Dinoy had he told me that they couldn't pay me that month, and that was it. He was like, you know, yeah, you're gonna have to wait a month, and I was like, fuck you. Because of these factors, among several others, long gone were the days when the festival could host major premieres of big-ticket genre films. Even then. There was still one major event at Butnamathon in 2016. Filmmaker Ryan Johnson, the writer and director of The Last Jedi, as well as a previous attendee at the festival, was part of the audience. This guy came up and we gave him his bag with his t-shirt and his stuff in it. And when he walked away, I was like, you know, told my wife, that's the guy that's doing the next Star Wars movie. And she was like, really? And I was like, yeah, that's the dude. That was Mark Roma, who was working as a volunteer at the festival that year. Ryan Johnson wasn't there to play a clip from the new Star Wars film, which had just wrapped production in July of that year. Because, let's be real folks, there was no way in hell Lucasfilm was ever going to allow that to happen. Regardless, according to Mark, as well as many other people who attended the event, Ryan Johnson stood up in front of the crowd for one major surprise. Uh, you know, he was like, all right, everybody sound like you're, sound like you're, you're upset. You're seeing something that's upsetting you. So everybody's like booing and hissing. And he's like, okay, good. Now it sounded like you're super excited. And we cheered. And he was like, all right, sound like you're mad. And we, you know, we all groaned. And, and then he was like, okay, cool. You're going to be in the next Star Wars. Johnson reportedly had members of the Lucasfilm sound team with him who recorded the audience that day and then used that audio during at least part of the Casino Planet scenes in The Last Jedi. Mark adds that at the time, the fact that everyone who attended Butnamathon would forever be immortalized as part of the audio in a Star Wars film felt great. 
Yet now, that feeling has turned bittersweet. I say that because the events we mentioned before now would lead to major changes and accountabilities both in the real world and online. It's because of those changes that this would be the final time Ain't It Cool News would ever be allowed to host Buttonumathon at the Alamo Draft House, or any theater for that matter. And the biggest reason for that is that in September of the following year, multiple women would speak out and publicly accuse Harry Knowles of sexual misconduct. On this episode of Download, the rise and fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, we will dive into the terrible allegations that would nearly destroy one of the world's most dedicated and tight-knit film communities. The cultural blind spots, both subconscious and intentional, that enable these accusations to happen for years. And we will share how the bravery of the women who stepped forward to speak out against Harry Knowles helped another woman to redefine similar events from her own past, and most importantly, to step forward herself. All of this and more, so let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Episode 8, Hay Bells. Not that the website deserves our sympathy, but before 2017, Ain't It Cool News was already facing difficult times. The site's number of monthly visitors had begun to diminish greatly. And because of the IRS woes we mentioned in the previous episode, almost no one who worked for the website was getting paid. Eric Vespi, who actually ran the site at this time as managing editor, estimates that near the end of his time with the site in 2017, Ain't It Cool News owed him $15,000 in back pay. I kind of stopped being friends with Harry, you know, for, for a while and it, where I'd go over to his house and hang out or whatever, and it'd be more like a boss-employee relationship. But even then... Eric remained devoted to the site. Seeing that the world of podcasting was on the rise, Eric sought to make Ain't It Cool News foray into the world of internet audio, only to be shut down by Harry Knowles. So what did Harry think was a better avenue for the Ain't It Cool News brand to stretch its wings? Hey folks, Harry here in my magical basement. And you know what? It's great to have you here. You are listening to a clip from Ain't It Cool News with Harry Knowles, a heedless, albeit visually impressive video series that Harry produced for two seasons. The first season was made in conjunction with The Nerdist and YouTube before it was cancelled. Then Harry decided that the best way to make the second season was to raise money via Kickstarter. I don't want to dwell on this part of the story for very long, as it was a latter-day controversy for a website that has a history full of controversies. As Harry attempted to raise $100,000 to produce the series independently, his Kickstarter backers became increasingly concerned with the webmaster's lack of transparency in terms of how their money was being spent. And in the end, some of the webmaster's closest friends and most devoted followers felt burned by this undertaking. This includes former Ain't It Cool News writer Alan Cerny. I mean, I, I, I gave him money for that, even though he hadn't paid me. That's, that's the fucked up part. I was working for the site at the time. I still gave money to the, to the Kickstarter. That's so stupid. 
If this were the worst controversy to happen in what would likely be the final chapter of Ain't It Cool News, that probably would have been enough. But as most people who are aware of the story would agree, the worst was yet to come. Okay, so I've always been a, a ridiculous movie geek. Like, movies have been my life, my whole life. This is Jasmine Marriott. We actually introduced Jasmine at the beginning of the very first episode of this program. Like virtually everyone we've met in the process of making this story, Jasmine loves movies. Much to her mother's consternation, this passion was baked into Jasmine's mind from a very young age, courtesy of her uncles. And so they would piss her off and let me watch stuff that I shouldn't have been watching, like, you know, Friday the 13th, Elephant Man, Alien, Blue Lagoon, all sorts of different stuff. Jasmine was a single mom. She had three kids and limited options in terms of babysitters. So like many people who couldn't go out during the late 90s and early 2000s, she turned to the internet. So being that I'm a huge movie geek, you know, I'm going to, and the internet is, you know, it's, it's, it's popping at this point, you know, it's again, early 2000s. God, it seems like a lifetime ago. I just want to take a moment to appreciate the way Jasmine used the word poppin' to describe the early explosion of the internet. There was a period of time where, before it took over our world, the internet felt like the invention of a new toy or fad, like a hula hoop or slap bracelets. It was poppin', so long as you didn't venture too far below the surface. And for a hardcore movie fan like Jasmine, with few opportunities to leave the home in the early 2000s, some would say it was inevitable that she would end up at ain'titcoolnews.com. That's when they were really hitting their stride between, you know, being just this little, you know, tiny movie-based website to starting to get some actual recognition. Like Harry was actually starting to, you know, build up the site in terms of getting name recognition in the industry and getting access to things and stuff like that. So when I started going to Anna Cool News, I noticed they had a chat room and I went in the chat room. In there, um, especially with being housebound, I met a lot of people and I made a lot of friends. Um, some I'm still lifelong friends to this day. In our last episode, we discussed talkbacks, the comment section that ran at the bottom of each article in Ain't It Cool News. As far as communities go, talkbacks were typically a horrible place for women. If you haven't done so already, you can listen to the previous episode to find out why. But according to many of the women who frequented the site, including Megan Murray, the chat room provided a much more welcoming space for women fans of Ain't It Cool News. There was a little hive of us that were pretty incredible. Uh, you had Jasmine. Um, in the beginning, it was me. It was Holly Blaine who passed away. She ended up being one of my very best friends in the world. I miss her every day. Uh, then there was her friend Jen and there was Honey Bee. There were some people from England, but uh, there was a hive of women in there that kind of really, you know, got to be really good friends in real life. There was more of a female presence there than anywhere else on the site. True story, Megan actually met her now husband in the chat room of Ain't It Cool News. They've been married now for 20 years. As for Jasmine, this chat room provided a virtual space where movie nerds like herself could cut loose without having to worry about being misunderstood. This community was everything to Jasmine, so much so that eventually they made her into a moderator for the chat room. It was an unfiltered way for us all to kind of be obnoxious with each other. Like, since we couldn't all be in a room together being drunk and obnoxious, we we're all kind of in a virtual room together being drunk and obnoxious. Nerds before nerds became cool. Aside from being a safer place for women than talkbacks, the chat room was the place where many of the people who wrote for the site would go to hang out. 
This included a lot of the regular contributors like Drew McQueenie, aka Moriarty, but on some occasions, Harry Knowles himself would show up. Harry would pop into the chat every so often. I was one of the few girls that was actually in the chat room. So, you know, and of course, when he first came in, I'm like, holy shit, that's, you know, that's fucking Harry Knowles. And, you know, a lot of us were like, that's not really Harry. And like, you know, Drew would be like, no, that actually is Harry. And we're, and of course, we're fangirling. We're like, oh my God, you know, this is Harry Knowles, you know, the person who runs the site and he knows everybody, knows everything. He has all these connections and holy shit. He's like, you know, the, the king nerd of everything that we love. With everything we know today, it might seem strange to think that a bunch of women used to, as Jasmine said, fangirl over Harry Knowles. And now might be as good a time as any to address the fact that throughout the course of making this project, I've seen many people complain about the way I've explored the allure of Ain't It Cool News, specifically during its early days. Some have gone so far as to describe this project as hero worship, or even worse, a hagiography. I understand these concerns, but the reason I explored many of the seemingly positive or less negative aspects of Ain't It Cool News beyond a desire to document this history is to rationalize the reactions and behavior of women like Jasmine Marriott. If I stayed on the surface level, as many writers have done, if I only presented the now disgraced webmaster Harry Knowles as nothing more than a creepy internet dweller who also wrote his now infamous review of Blade 2, everything that happens next might seem crazy. I started like talking to him in the chat, just being like, hey, Harry. And I would, and I'd try to talk movies, but he'd be really flirty and kind of inappropriate, but we were all kind of laughing it off, you know, whatever. But he started talking to me. And within about 10 minutes, that talking in open chat went to private messaging because through the chat, you could actually private message people as well. And initially, he just started talking movies with me. There's one thing you should know about Jasmine Marriott. Before she moved to California, she lived in Ohio, where she would attend a 24-hour movie marathon that a local cinema palace hosted every spring. And it was a really great place where, you know, um, the theater at the time that held it was 800 people. So, you know, 800 people getting together and just having a fucking baller-ass time. So you would think in California, especially Southern California or even L.A., that things like that would be prevalent, and they're not. There is no such thing as a 24-hour movie marathon out here. It goes without saying that when Jasmine heard about But Numathon, Harry's 24-hour genre film festival slash birthday party, she wanted nothing more than to attend. But to get there, Jasmine would need to apply to get in and make the trip from California down to Austin. We will be talking about this a little later in the show. For now, I'll just say that Jasmine wasn't the only one who wanted to attend one of the screenings Harry Knowles hosted in Austin, Texas. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Animal Draft House Cinema. Thank you all for coming out and joining us tonight on a uh, somewhat blustery Monday evening. Um, so, I don't know about you guys, but I have got uh, sort of summer movie fever. And I've That's Tim League, who was then co-owner of the Alamo Draft House. He's standing in front of a packed theater, getting ready to host what is supposed to be a 10-minute preview of the 2009 Star Trek, directed by J.J. Abrams. This preview is set to run before a repertory screening of what is probably the greatest Star Trek movie of them all, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. But before that can happen, Tim League offers a stern warning to the audience. There are no cameras, there's no cell phones. I mean, if you somehow made it through the Iron Brigade there at the front of the door, and you have something like that in your pocket, don't bring it out, just pretend like you don't have it and don't take it out 
because we've got infrared cameras all over the place, and they're seriously, they're going to point, they're, they're not, they're not going to do anything. They're just going to point to me, and then point to you, and I'm going to punch you in the face until you bleed through every orifice in your face, okay? He then introduces the man one could argue is not only responsible for this screening, but for much of the success of the Alamo Draft House itself. And so this, uh, this joint venture is brought to you in part by Fantastic Fest and Any Cool News, and I'm going to be uh, bringing to the limelight here my partner in crime, Mr. Harry Knowles, founder, creator, mastermind of Any Cool News, uh, to introduce the Wrath of Khan. Harry Knowles introduces the Wrath of Khan, inviting Star Trek 2009 screenwriters Roberto Orsi, Alex Kurtzman, and Damon Lindelof up from the crowd. The screenwriters address the audience and introduce what is supposed to be a preview of their unreleased film. And then, the movie breaks. The screenwriters return to the front of the screen and jokingly try to pacify the audience. <laughs> then a man wearing a hat emerges from behind a curtain. And here's where the story gets crazy, folks. That person who walked from behind the curtain is not just some rando in a hat. When he removes the hat, we see that it's veteran Star Trek actor and director Leonard Nimoy. AKA Mr. Spock. He's holding a 35 millimeter film can of what is supposedly the rest of the 2009 Star Trek reboot. You know, so the audience can watch the entire movie instead of just a preview. This was exactly the same way that both Harry Knowles and Tim League premiered The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, at the third but Numathon in 2001. According to Mark Roma, it was both Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News who put the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema, which was co-founded by Tim League and his wife Carrie, on the map. The, the moment that they started to get international press for some of these things, like, oh, you know, Lord of the Rings screened here and uh, Passion of the Christ screened here, those sorts of things got press way outside of Austin. Mark adds that when the Alamo Drafthouse co-founder Tim League referred to Harry Knowles as his partner in crime, it was more than just a joke. Uh, Tim and Carrie had failed in uh, opening their first movie theater in California, Bakersfield, I think they said it was, and it, it did terrible. It, it, did, it did not catch on at all. And so they came to Austin, and they were in a warehouse. I think Harry said there were bales of hay behind the movie screen to hold up the movie screen. So it was a really fly-by-the-night by the seat of your pants um, uh, operation. As someone who visited the original Alamo Drafthouse location, I want to correct one thing that Mark just said. The bales of hay he mentioned were actually used to line the walls of the auditorium, floor to ceiling, as a crude form of soundproofing behind a flimsy dark curtain. In terms of fire hazards that should have never been allowed, this was beyond absurd. It meant that every audience member who attended a movie at the original Alamo was but one errant spark away from total incineration. Much like the Nazis at the end of Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Okay, 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 minus the machine gun fire, of course, but you get the point. Anyway, these hay bales might seem like a non sequitur. A silly detail one would include as part of an anecdote. 
But more than anything, these hay bales speak volumes about the moral and ethical compass of the leagues as well as the company they were trying to build. In 2017 and beyond, we would learn that many Alamo employees and customers were placed in direct line of potential harm. But for the Alamo Draft House, it seemed as if that was okay, so long as they got to host the next cool screening or event. And a huge reason the Alamo was able to host so many exclusive movie premieres and events with major celebrity guests is linked directly to the built-in international publicity these films would get via Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News. Tim Doyle is an illustrator and printmaker who worked at the Alamo during its early days from 2004 to 2009. I do know a lot of the higher-ups at the Alamo, uh, Tim Lee included, kind of realized they had the tiger by the tail with him because his relationship with film directors and other people, um, they could use him as a way to leverage a relationship with other film directors and stuff like, you know, Guillermo del Toro. And, but yeah, Harry, uh, you know, a lot of people are just like, man, what's with that guy? He's so annoying. Can't stand him. But then, you know, his fans would come in from all over the world for his events and they'd look at him like he was Jesus, you know? Tim worked as a waiter at the Alamo for a couple of months before he parlayed his skills in both art design and retail management in order to run Mondo the merchandising and high-end poster and collectible subsidiary of the Alamo Draft House. Because of this, his perspective on the company and its culture comes from being a troop on the ground to one of its highest lieutenants. I've worked in movie theaters, and I've worked in food service. Both environments can be crazy places where a lot of wild shit goes down. The pervasiveness of drugs, alcohol, and sex that Tim describes at the Alamo is no exception. But what makes what would be a typical day in the life of a service industry worker so unique at the Alamo Draft House is that at any given moment, a major filmmaker or celebrity would be close by, engaging in a lot of the same behavior. I can say that the Alamo was the real Bacchanalian place. So everything bad about being a waiter, plus, oh, we're smoking out with the cast of Monster Squad. Like, it's like... And it just gets weird, man. You know, this stuff swirls around you if you work in food service. There's also Quentin Tarantino standing there in the kitchen, and you're all, you know, smoking out. And the... <laughs> I remember Tarantino smoking weed in the walk-in freezer with the cooks. And you're just like, awesome. You know, it's just, it, and it just makes stuff strange. That strangeness that Tim describes of seeing one of the most popular film directors to ever live smoke weed with the line cooks of a Texas kitchen would not have been possible without a beacon to bring these celebrities to what was ostensibly a dinner movie theater. And the beacon that attracted so many directors, actors, screenwriters, and filmmakers to the Alamo, especially during the early days, was Ain't It Cool News. There are a lot of people who call Alma Draft House Church, uh, and uh, uh, and and aren't completely kidding. That's Paul Alvarado Dykstra, a legal co-owner and former chief operating officer of Ain't It Cool News. In 2005, Paul had an idea to link the power of both the Alamo and Ain't It Cool News for a brand new venture a genre film festival called Fantastic Fest. One of the big assets that Harry brought early on, and I think really like why he's fundamentally a co-founder, was that Ain't It Cool at the time carried much more weight as a 
media partner, publicity partner, uh, to promote it and get the word out and advocate for it within the film community and, and, and to help attract filmmakers and films. And Harry did a lot of direct personal outreach uh, to filmmakers. So like John Favreau then was a guest with Zathura uh, our first year. Dykstra recalls one specific first-time director from Cuba who submitted his debut feature film to Fantastic Fest in 2011. One of my favorite stories, uh, uh, he's become a dear friend, uh, Alejandro Brujes, um, a horror filmmaker from Cuba, made the first horror movie in Cuba called Juan of the Dead. Um, had, had no business being anywhere near as great as it is. He had been living you know, in Cuba with a very intermittent, low speed internet connection to the outside world uh, that that sometimes he could get through and read Ain't It Cool News and read about the Alamo Draft House and, and Fantastic Fest. And to him, like Austin and the Alamo and Fantastic Fest was like Oz. It was like this magical fairy tale land where people love movies and make them and come together and can eat and drink while watching a movie and all these things that just sounded amazing to him living in, in Cuba. Much to Alejandro's surprise, when he played his debut Juan of the Dead at Fantastic Fest, it was a hit. And according to Dykstra, the screening completely changed the trajectory of Alejandro's life, leading to opportunities to work on new films and TV series. But in 2017, something happened that nearly shattered this so-called magical fairy tale land. It was the perfect storm of controversies, one that nearly sank both the Alamo and Fantastic Fest. And as many now believe, it completely destroyed Ain't It Cool News. In the cold opening of this episode, we talked about online film critic Devin Faraci, who in the fall of 2016 was accused by a fellow journalist of grabbing her vagina. This happened shortly after Devin had decried former U.S. President Donald J. Trump for bragging about doing the very same thing. In response to this allegation, Devin issued this brief non-apology. I, I do not remember this. I can only believe you and beg forgiveness for being so vile. At the time all of this went down, Devin was editor-in-chief of Birth Movies Death an internet movie news website that was owned by Tim League and the Alamo Draft House. And depending on who you asked, after this accusation of extreme misconduct, Tim League fired Devin, or Devin resigned. At least that is what we were led to believe. But on September 12th, 2017, journalist Kaylee Donaldson, a writer for the political and entertainment blog Pajiba, broke the story that Devin had been secretly rehired by Tim League and the Alamo. Not only that, but Devin was writing the program notes for that year's Fantastic Fest, which was slated to take place during the same month. Given the importance of Fantastic Fest, as well as the emerging profile of the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in the national film scene, journalists from multiple outlets leaped onto the story. One of those journalists was an entertainment reporter named Kate Erbland, who is now the executive editor for IndieWire. And then there was sort of like this fresh like wave of more allegations and a lot of people being very upset that, you know, Drafthouse, which owned Birth Movies Death, which put on Fantastic Fest, specifically Tim League, was still giving Devin a platform. On September 14th, Kate reported on the resignation of Todd Brown, 
the international film programmer for Fantastic Fest. When Todd left the festival, it was a resignation and protest. What's more, when Todd resigned, he did so via a blistering announcement he released through Facebook. Here is an excerpt. Anyone who has ever suggested that Fantastic Fest and the Draft House is just the geek-friendly equivalent of the classic old boys club, you have just been proven correct. We have just seen that club in action. There it is, the club, utterly ignoring the victim while it creates a protective ring around the perpetrator, telling every woman who has ever been harassed or assaulted that the predatory males around them will be protected if they are part of the club telling every woman that the sad man whose life is in shambles because of his own actions deserves help and support in putting himself back together while she deserves nothing. The day after Todd's exit, citing what they would only refer to as recent events, Fox Searchlight made the announcement that they would be pulling their film Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri from its slated premiere at Fantastic Fest. Father, just like those crips and just like those bloods, you're culpable. Because you joined the gang, man. I don't care if you never did shit, you never saw shit, you never heard shit. You joined the gang, you're culpable. Directed by Martin McDonough, Three Billboards would have been a major get for Fantastic Fest. While not quite a genre film in the strictest sense, the Frances McDormand drama, which follows a woman seeking answers about her daughter's death and a world that seems too misogynistic to care, was gaining steam on the festival circuit. Then on September 21st, the day after Fantastic Fest was set to begin, Kate Erbland followed up her Todd Brown story with a new report about how Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News were stepping out as sponsors of Fantastic Fest and would not be attending in any capacity. And then Harry Knowles did this big show of, well, I'm stepping down as a sponsor and I'm only going to cover it this year and I don't want my name associated with this and blah, blah. And so we wrote about that. And then I started getting messages from people I know, people that I know sort of peripherally, basically saying it's pretty rich for Harry Knowles to be like, I'm stepping down because of, I don't want to be associated with someone like Devin Faraci who's been accused of these things. And I had several women come to me and say that they wanted to share their stories or at least just talk about their stories. As Kate began to listen to stories of these women, Harry Knowles was out in the world oblivious to the fact that his life was about to change forever. He was even on Facebook, assuring fans of Butnumathon, or BNAT, that the drama happening at Fantastic Fest would not extend to his personal 24-hour movie marathon. BNAT is immune. It's love of film and each other. Then on the afternoon of Saturday, September 23rd, 2017, Harry Knowles published another message on Facebook. I love all of you. Keep being fantastic. With everything we know now, this message feels oddly timed. Perhaps Harry was sincerely wishing everyone a good time at Fantastic Fest, despite the fact that he wouldn't be attending that year. Perhaps this message was the webmaster's final gasp of the old world as he knew it before everything changed. Alas, hurrah as it were from an era when most people who knew Harry loved him. It might have also been an attempt at manipulation or a preemptive form of damage control. I say this because exactly 40 minutes after Harry Knowles made this post, he took to social media again to say, There's a story coming about me that is 100% untrue. I was this person's friend and confidant. I wish her nothing but the best, but 
untrue. Not that he was ever a master grammarian or anything, but I think it's appropriate to point out that Harry ended that final two-word sentence where he said the words, but untrue, without a period or punctuation mark of any kind. Clearly, he was desperate. Later that afternoon, Cater Bland, along with fellow writer Dana Harris-Bridson, released a new story on IndieWire. The headline read, Harry Knowles allegedly sexually assaulted Austin woman two decades ago, and the draft house owners didn't take action. In talking with the multiple women who were coming forward with accusations of sexual misconduct by Harry Knowles, Kate Erblin met a woman who, for the purposes of this story, we will call Jen. And that's where this first story came from, about, you know, this woman in Austin who was a big film fan. She was friends with Tim and Carrie League. She had worked at the Draft House for a period of time, detailing the number of times that Harry Knowles had sexually assaulted her and touched her. And the way that it was treated within the community and the way that she felt about it, it was, it was horrifying. In Kate Erblin's story, Jen alleged that Harry Knowles touched her body repeatedly and without consent, which for many people meets the definition of sexual assault. She said that this happened between the years of 1999 and 2000. Harry Knowles groped me, opportunistically, on more than one occasion. I cannot just stay silent. I am not interested in remaining silent. Jen alleged that while attending an event at the Alamo Draft House, Knowles rubbed up against her backside and legs. She felt uncomfortable with this and made it clear to Harry that he did not have consent to touch her body in any way whatsoever. He just giggled about it. It was horrifying. I didn't know what to do. In the article, Jen states she reported Harry Knowles' behavior to Tim and Carrie League shortly after it transpired. The League's response, according to Jen, was for her to simply avoid Harry Knowles. 20 years ago, 18 years ago, women routinely were encouraged to just watch their own behavior. And other people who wanted to do inappropriate things or say inappropriate things and be inappropriate and leer and be lecherous without your permission, without your consent, the air in the room was more on the side of, well, you should watch what you do, not don't touch people without their consent. Tim Doyle says he worked with Jen at the Alamo Draft House during part of the time she was employed there between 2003 and 2007. Tim Doyle adds that Tim and Carrie League were not the only people Jen had warned about Harry Knowles. You know, she was kind of like, yeah, man, he can't keep his hands to himself. He's always touching the girls. It was like, oh, weird. Okay. And, you know, this is, I don't know, 2004, 2005. Like, I knew girls who would say, like, oh, he ran his wheelchair into me so that I had to fall into his lap. Like, gross. There'd be rumors and people talking about it. And, you know, back then I was like, oh, I'm sure if he was really a problem, somebody in management would do something, right? You know, like, it's like, oh, if he was really this horrible person, I'm sure the people in charge would sever their ties with him. But of course that didn't happen, you know? Like, and as time went on, as more stuff came out, it's like, oh, they knew this stuff was going on and they just kind of let it keep happening. When Kate Erblin first broke the story about Harry Knowles' sexual assault, many people who were familiar with the webmaster were shocked, myself included. However, there was one major exception. So do I believe that he has sexually inappropriately touched people? Of course I do. That's Drew McWeenie, a.k.a. Moriarty. Until he quit the site in 2008, Drew was Harry Knowles' greatest collaborator at Ain't It Cool News. 
He says he had no problem believing that Harry Knowles could be capable of the sexual misconduct he was accused of doing. The reason being, Drew alleges that Harry Knowles did the exact same thing to him. Harry is a grabby, weird, intrusive dude. Harry loves, and it's a joke to him, Harry loves to invade personal space. One of his favorite things to do is you'll walk up, and he's at wheelchair level, and he'll cup your balls as a joke. And I told him every single time, I find it insanely intrusive, not funny, not cool. He, 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 it's a joke to him. And I think to some degree, he believes that because he's in the chair, because he's disabled, that he has permission, that it's okay, that it's funny, that it's cute. Three days after her first story, Kate Erblen published a follow-up. Four more women stepped forward to share their personal stories. These accusations involved more allegations of groping or sexual assault. One woman, who asked that we refer to her as Jessica, accused Harry of grabbing her buttocks and other parts of her body without consent. She added that this happened so often, she simply chose to stop walking within grabbing distance of Harry Knowles. But the second wave of allegations that Kate Erblen reported on introduced a new element that we had not heard of before. That Harry Knowles would sexually harass women who wanted to attend his exclusive premiere screenings. Even wanted to just go to a pre-screening for fun. Like you were going to come into contact with Harry and if Harry was going to ask you for something and you really wanted to go, especially if you really wanted to be a journalist and you thought this is a good connection to make. A lot of people felt very pressured and felt like there was just not even pressure, like there was no other choice. Like if you want to be part of the scene, this is someone that you have to deal with and this is someone's behavior that's going to be a part of your life. At the end of our previous episode, we had mentioned that Harry Knowles had requested a kiss from Jessica in exchange for being able to attend a premiere screening of Captain America, the first Avenger. Additionally, there was another woman who stepped forward an accomplished film critic and journalist who was based out of Austin. This film critic, who we will call Diane, first shared her grievance against Harry Knowles via Twitter. Harry sexually harassed me. He has sexually harassed other women in this community for years. This wasn't an anomaly. He is a predator. During an interview that Diane gave with Kate Erbland, this film critic shares a story about events that transpired in 2012. This was the time when Diane was just starting her career as a journalist. She had attended Butnamathon the year prior and wondered via a post on Twitter whether or not she wanted to attend the festival again that year. Diane adds that shortly after she shared this thought on Twitter, Harry Knowles reached out to her directly, asking if she wanted to know the quote, real way to get into Butnamathon. This question piqued Diane's curiosity, so she asked, to which Harry Knowles replied with the following message. Show me your tits. Diane says she then unfollowed Harry Knowles on Twitter and tried her best to avoid him in public, something that is difficult to do as a film journalist in Austin, Texas, since Harry Knowles was oftentimes a gatekeeper to many important events and screenings. There was a hesitance on my part to really talk about it publicly, because at the time I thought, this could really hurt my career. There's just something really deeply unsettling about him and the way he enjoys the attention that he gets and the way that he leverages his power for attention. According to the handful of women from the Austin film-going community who spoke out against Harry Knowles, 
the webmaster was a missing stare. The missing stare is a metaphor coined by a writer named Cliff Provocracy. Cliff is a blogger in the BDSM community and used the term missing stare to describe a person in their social circle who was a known serial sex offender. In this metaphor, the people who know about this so-called missing stare don't feel that it is an urgent problem in their community, or at the very least, that it would be taxing or inconvenient to confront this person in order to hold them accountable. In the case of the Alamo Draft House and Harry Knowles, it would seem most likely that the relationship the burgeoning theater chain had with its missing stare, i.e. Knowles and his website, were too financially beneficial to risk via confrontation. So rather than be repaired, or to be more specific, expelled from this community, this missing stare is managed by simply walking around it and quietly encouraging others to do the same. Tim and Carrie Leak built the original Alamo Draft House, a place for mass gatherings of human beings, with literal, extremely flammable bales of hay used to line the walls. When you have that fact baked into the core of their company, Mark Roma says it's easy to believe the leagues would apply a missing stare mentality to Harry Knowles. There is absolutely no way on earth that Tim didn't know. There's no way somebody who knew Harry as long as he knew Harry and was around Harry for every one of these BNATs and every one of these screenings and all of this stuff, there's no way somebody that could have been around him that much. I remember Harry told us a story one time about one of the early BNATs about how he had picked a movie specifically um, because he knew there was a particularly sexy scene in this movie. And he said he had a girl on either side of him that he was into. And he was bragging to us that during the film, he was simultaneously fingering both girls. I'm, I'm using his terminology, but he was fingering both girls at the same time. And he knew exactly when to do it to make them climax at a sp specific scene in the movie. And I'm like, there's no way that's happening in your theater if, if it happened. But it, there's no way things like that could happen and you wouldn't be aware. In the missing stare metaphor, the people who pay the greatest price are the ones who don't get the silent memo to avoid the person who has been dubbed a danger. Aside from the immediate peril of interacting with these harmful individuals, these survivors face another challenge by being ignored and in some extreme cases even blamed for their own discomfort or pain. According to Jasmine Marriott, the movie fan from California who we met earlier in this episode, that's exactly what happened to her in 2004. As we said previously, Jasmine had met Harry Knowles in the chat room of Ain't It Cool News. She sincerely believed that the two of them had struck a friendship. We would start calling each other. I mean, we would call, he would call me or I would call him and we would talk for two, three hours in a, in a stretch. Easy. Just about movies and about, you know, all the stuff that he's got coming up and all the things that he wants to do and, you know, what movies we love, what movies we can't stand, what directors we love, what directors we hate. And it was really great. But there was also a bit of an appropriate talk as well. He's, he, I can be a huge flirt if I'm, if I'm comfortable. I tend to be a bit of an introvert, but if I'm comfortable with somebody, I, I can just, I have a very flirty personality. And he would flirt a lot as well. You know, and he had a girlfriend at the time. It was not his wife, uh, his current wife. It's a different girl. Um, who I had also gotten to know through the chat room. She would pop in the chat room too. And, and like, and so I would talk to her on the phone too. And, you know, again, you know, I just thought this was a friendship. 
Then Jasmine says Harry did something that totally surprised her. We had mentioned earlier in the show that like many people, Jasmine Marriott had wanted to attend but Numathon. As it was rolling around, I mentioned to him, I'm like, okay, well, you know, when you want to when you want to have submissions, let me know when I'm going to apply. And he's like, you don't have to apply. I was like, okay, I don't. He's like, no, I want you there. Just come. You're in. Not only that, but Harry comped Jasmine's ticket to the festival. Jasmine remembers being so excited by this opportunity. She somehow managed to secure a babysitter for the weekend, as well as a plane ticket to Austin. But Numathon always runs from Saturday through Sunday. But Jasmine arrived one day earlier to attend an exclusive pre-party that would take place at a video store owned by Harry Knowles' sister, Danny Knowles. It was there that Jasmine would meet Harry Knowles in person for the first time. It was also the place where, according to Jasmine, she would learn that Harry Knowles' intentions were not as pure as she first believed. So I show up, and of course I'm nervous, because I'm just like, you know, yeah, this, this, this guy's kind of a big deal, you know? It's like, even though we talk on the phone all the time, I'm still nervous, you know? Because again, I'm an introvert. I have a bit of social anxiety, you know, whatever. And so after about an hour of being there and mingling, I'm like, fuck it, you know, I need to go, I need to go talk to him because it's fucked up if I don't, right? So um, I end up going up to him and I'm like, hey, you know, it's Jasmine. Oh my God, I'm here. This is fucking rad. And he's like, oh my God. And, and this is when he, he was in the wheelchair. And I go to give him a hug and he immediately pulls me into his lap. Jasmine says she immediately felt uncomfortable when Harry did this, but tried to laugh it off. I mean, I've, I've sat in friends' laps. It's not a big deal, whatever. Usually they ask or whatever, but, you know, whatever. So he pulls me into his lap, and I'm just like, okay, um, hey, you know, how are you doing? How are, you know, I know you're really busy because everybody's wanting to talk to him. I mean, like, everybody has, like, this crowd around him. And I just remember, you know, we just start talking, and he's like, and then he goes up and tries to kiss me, and I was like, Okay, and, but I didn't kiss him. I just kind of moved my cheek and kissed him on the cheek and let him kiss me on the cheek. But I'm noticing that he's like starting to get a little handsy and, and starting to get, you know, super flirty in that super flirty inappropriate way. And I'm just like, and you know, I kind of put up with it for a few minutes and then, I th and then I'm just like, you know what? There are a million people here that want to talk to you. You know, this is your birthday. These are people who came to see you. I'm going to go mingle. I'll be back. And he was like, no, 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 it's fine. I'm like, no, 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 it's I've got people I want to see too. And, you know, this is a whole weekend. You know, this is not going to be the last time we see each other. I just, you know, I need to go. And, you know, and part of that was because I was uncomfortable. After this encounter, Jasmine says she spent the rest of the night of the video store pre-party avoiding Harry, kind of like a missing stare. While doing this, she adds that she was just enjoying the opportunity to hang out with some of the other regulars from the Ain't It Cool chat room in person. As the night dwindled on, she talked to Harry Knowles just one more time in order to say goodbye. Uh, and then he's like, I need a hug before you go. And I'm like, all right, that's fine. I let him pull, pull me into his lap again, gave me a hug, and again, got very handsy, like around the sides of my breasts and kind of on my ass. And I'm just like, okay, this is not... Not okay. There's one more thing I should note. While mingling with fellow chatroom friends at the pre-party, Jasmine alleged she was approached by Harry Knoll's girlfriend, a woman named Jana. A quick note, we are only using Jana's first name. Through multiple sources, we have verified that Jana exists, had attended but Numathon in 2004, and was for a time a known romantic partner of Harry Knoll's. 
The rest of what Jasmine is about to tell us has not been verified. Jana and I actually got to be really good friends and also very flirty because she is bisexual and so am I. Um, and so Jana and I kind of actually started messing around because it was something that she and I had actually actively talked about and, and had actively expressed interest in each other. And so we hung out a bit before about Namathon and she mentions, she's like, yeah, you know, Harry was really, was really hoping that you would come back, um, you know, and like show interest and whatever. And I'm just like, I'm like, yeah, I kind of figured, but I, I, I'm not really interested in him like that. I'm like, you know, I, I think he's a great guy. You know, I really love him to death, but you know, that's not really my thing. And Jenna was just like, okay, you know, whatever. Having politely turned down this alleged secondhand invitation to engage in group sex with Harry Knowles and his girlfriend, Jasmine tried her best to think nothing of it. But when she ran into Harry Knowles at Buttonumathon, she realized the webmaster had not extended her the same courtesy. So, you know, I, I go up and I give him a big hug and, then, you know, and he's, he's friendly, but again, he's kind of distant. So I'm just like, okay, well, you know, maybe he's just stressed out because, you know, this is, it's, it's here and it's now and this is a big thing. And maybe Jasmine wasn't entirely wrong about that. The Butnamathon that took place in 2004, known as BNAT6, would not be one of the festival's all-timer lineups. Even then, aside from the retro screenings, there were still several major premieres. This included director Matthew Vaughn's debut feature film, Layer Cake, starring a then-unknown actor by the name of Daniel Craig. I wonder what I'll be up to next. The festival also concluded with two brand new martial arts films, Ong Bak starring Tony Jia and Stephen Chow's delirious period action comedy, Kung Fu Hustle. Hmm. Not bad. Now what? But in the middle of it all, the supposed showstopper was a film adaptation of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, The Phantom of the Opera. The film was supposed to be a major breakout role for its star, Scottish actor Gerard Butler. But for Harry Knowles, the movie actually had another, even greater personal meaning. For you see, this film adaptation of the Phantom of the Opera stage musical was directed by Harry's former enemy turned alleged friend, Joel Schumacher. And when the webmaster booked the film at Buttonumathon, it was rumored that Harry intended the screening as something of a comeback. In other words, a way to restore the internet movie geek community's love for Schumacher as a filmmaker which Harry had destroyed when he bashed Batman and Robin in 1997. However, according to Jasmine Marriott, as well as many people who have seen Joel Schumacher's The Phantom of the Opera, there was one major problem. It's fucking terrible. It makes Schumacher's Batman movies seem Oscar-worthy in comparison. There's something you should probably know about Harry Knowles. He hates it when people talk during a movie. This is something he has in common with the Alamo Drafthouse. The theater chain makes its no talking or cell phones policy clear during many custom-made video ads like this one, featuring Samuel L. Jackson. Hi, I'm Samuel L. Jackson. Turn off your mother phone! But I would argue that Harry takes it to extremes. Virtually every movie geek I have ever met in my entire life loves Mystery Science Theater 3000, the cult TV series that ran on Comedy Central and the Sci-Fi Channel. For those who've never watched the show before, it basically features a panel of comedians and talking robots who watch bad movies 
and make fun of them via hilarious running commentaries. Because Harry hates it when people talk during movies, he is unique within his community in that he, and basically he alone, hates Mystery Science Theater 3000. Jasmine knew this about Harry and tried her best to keep her mouth shut during the Phantom of the Opera. But as all 143 awful minutes of this film flickered onto the screen, Jasmine finally gave in to temptation. And I'm trying to hold in my disdain for this movie. I'm, I'm, and it just it got to the point of where there's a scene where they're going through the canals and the, the lit candelabra, candelabras, mind you, come up out of the water while still on fire. And that was just enough for me. I, I couldn't. And I just immediately just start slinging jokes, which I knew was not allowed, but I was not the only one. For probably 50 people in the audience who just started ripping into it because it was it was just bad but you know what though it made it fun jasmine wasn't wrong even harry's contributors like chicago-based writer steve procopy aka capone had fond memories of watching this film get bashed and i'm I've, i don't think i've ever been to a screening in austin or anywhere else where people were chanting end 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 like they wanted it to be over so much but according to steve there was one detail that no one in the theater was aware of at the time. Joel Schumacher intended to call Harry Knowles immediately after the screening, fully expecting to hear that the audience loved his brand new movie. And Harry was on the phone with him as soon as it was over because he wanted, Joel Schumacher wanted to know how, how it went over. <laughs> and Harry's like, not well, not well. Joel Schumacher's The Phantom of the Opera cost a reported $80 million to produce it would only gross $51.2 million in the U.S. Joel would go on to direct four more movies, and all of them would flop in theaters despite having much smaller budgets. He retired from filmmaking in 2011 and died in 2020. Meanwhile, back at the screening of The Phantom of the Opera in 2004, there would be hell to pay for the way the audience at Butnumathon turned so brutally against the film. And according to Jasmine Marriott, the person Harry had selected to pay the most was her. And afterwards, during the break, Jana comes up to me and it's just like, um, Harry's fucking furious at you. I was like, what? And she was like, for yelling back at the screen. And, and I was like, I, I know, I'm sorry, I can't help, I couldn't help it. You have to admit that movie was terrible. You know, how could I not? It was so bad. And it's not like, and nobody was blaming Harry for that. He hadn't seen it either. You know, nobody was, and of course it's not his fault, but you know, it was terrible. You know, and if you play a terrible film, just own it. Um, and it's not like Schumacher was there to fucking watch it. I mean, I, but I guess there were some 20th Century Fox people there. He was on the phone with Harry listening to the audience reaction. Was he really? Yes. Yeah, well, I didn't know that part. But anyway, so he was super pissed at me. And so I tried to, so I came up to him and I'm just like, and I tried to talk to him. I'm like, Harry, I'm sorry. You know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have talked back at the film. I, sh I shouldn't have done it. I said, you know, I, I take, I take responsibility for the fact that I did. I'm like, but come on, man. Cut me a little slack. And he just shut me out. Would not talk to me. Would not come near me. Would not anything. Jasmine would soon find out that Harry did more than just shut her out. He stopped taking her calls. And when she got back home and tried to re-enter the chat room, she discovered that Harry had been trashing her name. At first, I thought it was just because of what I did about Nemathon. And at first, I thought it was just for that. But then I found out other shit that he was saying, that I was a cock tease. 
that I used him and promised him sex and promised him all this other stuff just to get into Vietnamathon. You know, that I was a whore, that I was a slut, that I was just all of these horrible names completely trashed me. Took me off as moderator of the chat room, had me banned for a certain period of time. Which, you know, I mean, if it would have been simply because of my behavior at Benemathon, well, I think that that was extreme. I would have at least been able to accept that. And, you know, and hopefully be able to come back and sincerely apologize, because I actually did feel bad afterwards. But then to find out that he's also disparaging me on a sexual level just hit me. And then that's when I realized, I'm like, wait a minute, he expected as payment for all of his kindness and for his friendship and for letting me come to Vietnamathon for me to have sex with him. And then I heard from others that that's exactly what he, he was telling people is that, you know, I owed him. How did that feel? Really shitty. In the research of this story, I've interviewed two of the women who are among those who went public with allegations that Harry Knowles committed sexual assault and sexual harassment in 2017. They continue to stand by their stories today. At the same time, they no longer wish to speak on the record. One of the women was actually applying for a promotion at her job when we talked. The last thing she wanted was for anyone to hear of her name or her voice on this podcast and then ask if that was her. In short, they want to move on with their lives. And I fully understand and respect their choice to opt out of this project. Additionally, one of the reasons that one of the survivors chose not to participate is because I originally referred to what happened to Harry Knowles as well as a lot of powerful men at the dawn of the Me Too movement as a reckoning. This person disagreed strongly with this characterization. And here's the thing. When the survivor told me this, she was absolutely right. It was most certainly not a reckoning. Brenda Cosman feels the same way. Some call it a reckoning with sexual violence. I'm not sure that that's right because I don't think that we have actually reckoned with it yet. I think what, what it did was just show how pervasive it is. You know, there's nothing exceptional about it. It's more the rule than the exception. Um, and so for me, that's what Me Too really did. Now, you know, it has a number of other like sub stories, sub stories of, um, you know, the story of Harvey Weinstein and, and then the many other powerful men who very quickly fell from grace. People might have felt a sense of justice or even accomplishment when Louis C.K. was taken off of TV, streaming services and movie screens for sexual misconduct. Bill Cosby might have been convicted of aggravated sexual assault after more than 60 women accused him of drugging them and raping them in their sleep. But in 2022, Louis C.K. won a Grammy for releasing a new comedy album. He's also got a new movie he's attempting to release in theaters this summer. And after serving only two years of a 10-year prison sentence, Bill Cosby was released from jail based on nothing more than a technicality. So yeah, in terms of settling the account of sexual misconduct, harassment, and assault, that mostly men have committed against mostly women, Me Too was not a reckoning. But I would argue that at the very least, it was a redefinition. What I mean by that is that in the world we lived in prior to the Me Too movement, women, and sometimes even men, had experiences where the only word they had to define what they went through at the time was general shittiness. 
Originally, that's all Jasmine Marriott had to describe what happened between her and Harry Knowles in 2004. You know, it just it felt really shitty because it's like this person was my friend or I thought was my friend. I mean, like I said, we talked for two, three hours at a stretch almost every single night. But to have him trash talk me and try to destroy my reputation and to, to try to destroy any respect that anyone had for me, that hurt. That, that really, really hurt. And things were never really the same in the chat room since then because word got around. Uh, you know, I, I had to change my, my screen name in the chat room a bunch of times until somebody would figure out who I was. And it's funny the way that I internalized it. It's funny the way that I interpreted the whole uh, thing for the longest time. And, and, and I realized it's a generational thing. Jasmine locked onto something there that's worth exploring. Aside from the truth that sexual assault and harassment are more widespread than many people, especially men, might have assumed... According to Brenda Cosman, the Me Too movement also revealed the generational divide between feminists. A great example that Brenda Cosman explores in her book is the discourse surrounding comedian, actor, and director Aziz Ansari. Which is actually the moment in time where I think um, the Me Too consensus amongst feminists really broke apart. It was in the, the Aziz Ansari story where, you know, what did he do that was wrong? In 2018, a woman with the pseudonym Grace accused Aziz of sexual misconduct in a blog that ran on the website Babe.net, whose audience was primarily younger millennial and Gen Z readers. In the article, Grace shared how she went with Aziz to his apartment after a date. That is where he attempted to engage in sexual activity with Grace multiple times, despite repeated verbal and nonverbal cues from her that she wasn't interested. When Grace's account of these events hit social media, there was a generational divide among women and feminists in regards to how to classify Aziz's behavior. A lot of younger millennial and Gen Z women read this story and declared that what happened to this woman constituted sexual harassment. Some would even go so far as to say it was sexual assault. Then a contingent of Generation X and older millennials, a demographic that includes both Cosman and myself, stepped forward via social media with their objections. According to them, what transpired was more of a quote, bad date, end quote. Brenda Cosman has her own unique way of describing how she first considered this story. You know, I sardonically would call it another night in heterosexual dating, but not necessarily the way it should be. And it is worthy of discussion. The older generation of women and feminists also accuse their younger counterparts of trivializing sexual harassment and sexual assault with the way they categorize Aziz's behavior. To which the younger women responded dismissively by referring to these older women as quote, boomers, before making the more serious accusation that they were bad feminists. For Brenda Cosman, within this nuanced rift in perspective and ideology, there was a new generation of women who were coming into their own. They saw the existing, vastly imbalanced rules that govern what was and was not okay within the landscape of dating and sexuality. Noting the inadequate physical boundaries, they basically responded by saying, fuck this, we demand something better. Because of this shift, gone were the days when men could openly and gleefully engage in quid pro quo transactional sex without risking major consequences. 
Gone are the days when a woman says no, and a man can look at that response as nothing more than an invitation to make a sexual advance again ten minutes later. Gone are the days when men can just grab a woman's body, kiss her, or attempt to grope her in any way without consent. These were the stated demands and beliefs of this younger generation. And when older feminists heard this message, it ran counter to their lived experiences in the 90s and early to mid-aughts. But Brenda Cosman says many people in our generation have come around in terms of accepting this perspective. So some people really objected putting someone like Aziz Ansari in the same boat as Harvey Weinstein. You know, I don't really, I don't want to rank them. Well, maybe I do want to rank them in terms of some being legally actionable and some not being legally actionable, but still important to talk about because we can do better. Um, you know, we can do better with consent. We can do better with sexual relationships, um, with sexual communication. Like we can do better. And I will add something here. If there could be a slight, even nuanced divide in the way women look at sexual harassment and assault, that rift could only be greater in terms of men. This is especially true in the film obsessive world of internet movie geeks. What would it take for you to see things my way? A lot more than you've got. How do you know? I don't want to know. You're listening to a scene from Goldfinger, the 1964 James Bond film starring Sean Connery as everyone's favorite spy. He's in a barn alone with a woman named Pussy Galore. You're quite a girl, Pussy. I'm strictly the outdoor type. I'd like to think you're uh, not in all of this uh, caper. Skip it. I'm not interested. Let's go. When Pussy tries to leave the barn, James Bond grabs her by the arm and yanks her back into the doorway. She tries to leave again, and he does the same thing. So Pussy grabs Bond and uses a judo throw to send his ass to the ground. You've asked for this. James Bond then knocks Pussy's legs from underneath her. A fight ensues. During this fight, James grabs Pussy and throws her on top of a loose pile of hay. Ah. Now let's both play. And that is where James Bond forces himself on top of this woman, constraining her arms as she attempts to break free. Wrenching her head back and forth, Pussy is defiant until the very end of the scene when James Bond shoves his mouth on top of hers for a kiss. The scene then fades to black, implying that sexual activity will ensue despite a very visible lack of consent. Entire generations of moviegoers love the James Bond film Goldfinger. Harry Knowles loved the film too. I know this because a figurine of Auric Goldfinger, the movie's redheaded villain who was played by actor Gert Fraub, was a stand-in for Harry Knowles at the top of his wedding cake at the Webmaster's reception in 2007. But the whole truth is, and I'm sure this is going to piss a lot of people off, the hero in this movie commits an act of rape without any question or consequence for his behavior. According to Brenda Cosman, there were even people at the time this film was released who believed this was an example of James Bond taking charge while being suave and debonair, a real man's man and a ladies man at the same time. Um, for sure, like the early James Bond, oh my God, they're, 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 they're pretty horrifying in terms of the kind of absence of consent, the sexualization of, of a, a certain degree of violence. Um, almost rape. I don't know. You know, some of those early ones um, seem pretty rapey, but certainly 
um, the sexualization and the glorification of the womanizer. You know, that wasn't a negative thing. That was like, you know, the, the sexy bachelor, the groping, you know, that's exactly what, what Trump said. It wasn't even just groping, but it's, you know, grab them by the pussy. That's, that's just a celebration of groping culture. Even before these events with Harry Knowles in 2017, Drew McQueenie has spent a lot of time inventorying and in some cases confronting the toxic masculinity that was normalized in the films he loved as a kid. One of the things that is most interesting about our generation of critics and writers in particular is we came of age in the 80s and the 80s sold us a bill of goods. Um, You know, I have a theory that we were raised by assholes and uh, there is a reason our generation has been, I think, uh, struggling to figure out what manhood looks like. And it's because the role models we had were so, they they were pitched as if they were counterculture figures, but in a very conservative mainstream. And what we got sold was this sort of toxic, bully, dickhead archetype that has genuinely ruined pop culture and mainstream culture, I would say, for the last 25, 30 years. But I think before that, I I do think there's always been this idea of what filmmaking sells you versus, I think, what, uh, what we take from it or what we can take from it. Nothing I'm about to say excuses Harry Knowles' behavior in any way, but I firmly believe he was raised in large part by the movies he loves. In his book titled Ain't It Cool, Harry talks about how his parents exposed him to many films when he was growing up, which he absorbed like a human sponge. Harry adds that his father then took it a step further. This was also around the time my dad began to conduct what he called the experiment. He decided that the sociological premise then in vogue, which said that extended exposure to violent media can result in depraved behavior was strictly bullshit. And moreover, he would prove it with his firstborn. So I became a laboratory experiment for him. Constantly bombarded by popular culture, and the more graphic or grotesque, the better. He even showed me The Exorcist at a very young age. Everybody seemed to be in on the experiment. Harry might have never grown up to commit acts of violence. However, it wouldn't be a stretch to assume that, given their prevalence in a lot of classic films, Harry was bombarded by a lot of problematic and even criminal images regarding the way men treated women. Again, none of this is a rationalization or an excuse for anyone's behavior, but even contemporary mainstream filmmaking during the time of Harry's adolescence was loaded with terrible messages about the sexual agency of women. In raunchy, 80 sex comedies like Porky's or The Revenge of the Nerds, women were relegated to the role of human props. According to Billy Donnelly, the legacy of these films exists in large part due to a comedy routine where a blatant disregard for consent was the punchline. At one point in time, Revenge of the Nerds was great. And granted, there are parts of it still incredibly funny. But, like, the end of Revenge of the Nerds is like a rape. And it's celebrated because the nerds are now the heroes. And like, oh yeah, he screwed his girlfriend to get back at the at the jock who's picked on them. And like, that is supposed to be heroic activity. So when you view life through that lens, like I'm this geek, I'm this nerd, I was made fun of, like I was picked on. And yes, these are traumas that so many people deal with. And we need to sort of process those emotions and work through those emotions and try to grow from those emotions, not 
like, well, I'm going to take it out on these, on the world and get back at them by doing these horrible things. Um, so yes, that's Harry. Like, you know, Harry grew up watching these people do these things in movies and thinking that it's then okay, because I'm pretty sure nobody told them that it wasn't. You even had problematic scenes and so-called benign and even critically lauded films like Cameron Crowe say anything. Think about it. Here's a film about a guy named Lloyd Dobler, played by John Cusack. He's a mixed martial arts enthusiast, and he's kind of intense. What are your plans for the future? Spend as much time possible with Diane before uh, she leaves? Seriously, Lloyd. I'm totally and completely serious. He dates a young woman named Diane, played by Yoan Sky, until she dumps him. Then Lloyd Dobler responds by refusing to leave this woman alone. And in the film's climax, this intense, scary, amateur kickboxer guy goes to Diane's house and stands outside her window holding a boombox over his head while playing a love song. All my instincts, they return. It's important to note that all of this happens while Diane is laying in bed, trying to sleep. This moment is remembered as the most iconic scene in the film. So much so that they put it on the poster. It's also celebrated as one of the most romantic images in the history of filmmaking. But in the context of reality, and from the perspective of Diane, what's happening is harassment, and no doubt threatening. You're rude in saying anything for me. Now you're, you've totally ruined it. Now it's a horror movie. That was former newspaper film critic Rene Rodriguez's response when I shared this take on Say Anything with him. To which my response is, I'm not ruining the film at all. If you like the film, and there are a lot of critics and moviegoers who do, that's fine with me. But I think it's important to realize the way cinema culture has largely been dominated by men. Not only in terms of who makes the films, but who reviews them. And it's because of this that we have been gaslit into thinking a lot of sexually violent and harmful behavior is normal. Like Jasmine Marriott, I don't think any movie is above re-examination or more importantly, redefinition. And don't get me wrong, I love Say Anything, and I love Cameron Crowe, I, I, I love it, but it's, it's much like, again, looking back at John Hughes movies. Again, I grew up with those movies. You know, Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, Sixteen Candles, those movie movies defined me. But going back and watching them with, a, with, a, with a, a greater perspective and with a cultural shift, you're like, ooh, some of, some of that's a little problematic, you know? So I can, you know, so I absolutely agree with you that a lot of men, especially a lot of isolated men, um, can be shaped in, in a lot of the wrong ways. In creating the story, I wasn't just interested in the shark. I was also interested in the water where it came from. Additionally, in the case of Harry Knowles, who is a big fan of the movie King Kong, I'm not just interested in talking about the giant monkey. I also want to explore the literal theater that helped to put him on such a grand stage. And it's because of what I've learned that I find it absurd whenever someone bashes Harry Knowles online, only to then post selfies taken at the Alamo Draft House. One doesn't exist without the other. That's journalist Brock Wilbur, the editor-in-chief for The Pitch, an alt-weekly from Kansas City. For a large chunk of his life, Brock was also a fan of the Alamo Draft House, as well as its merchandising company, Mondo. Yet despite being a devout fan of the company, 
Three years after the Alamo promised to take meaningful action to address the sexual harm they enabled via their association with both Harry Knowles and Devin Faraci, Brock, along with a fellow reporter, revealed this was most certainly not the case. Anyone that thought that it ended in 2017 was wrong. Anyone that thought it ended in 2018 was wrong. Every year there's, there's a new one. In 2020, the pitch broke a major story about how the Alamo Draft House in Kansas City had many issues with sexual harassment and abuse. This includes quid pro quo offers for career advancement in exchange for sexual favors made to one employee while she was just a teenager. But the most extreme example in Wilbur's article involved an Alamo employee known only by the name Frederick. Frederick was wanted by police for the alleged rape of a woman who was in a relationship with another employee at the Alamo Draft House. Reportedly, the theater lied to police regarding Frederick's whereabouts and scheduled him to work closing shifts, often alone with other female employees. All of this happened while Frederick evaded police custody for an entire week. Every interview we did, we're like, what would it take for you to think that like change had been made here? Or do you think this could be fixed? And there was not a single one of them that did not say either verbatim or the equivalent of burn it to the ground. Like there is no redeeming it. There is nothing here. There's nothing on the national scale. It cannot be fixed. And those that was from people that like lived there, worked there, made all of their friends there, were there every day for years on end. They were like, there is nothing left in that place. After Brock released the story in August of 2020, the Alamo responded by closing its Kansas City location. Brock says reporters in other cities are exploring similar stories occurring within locations in their own communities as well. There are, there are at least three different cities I know that are looking at their draft house and starting to do the same long slog of a process of interviews that we went through. I'm, I'm sure at least one will come out this year, maybe the rest later if they can manage to cross the finish line on the legal side. And the hits keep coming. In 2021, citing the impact of COVID-19 on their industry, the Alamo Draft House declared bankruptcy and was purchased in part by a private equity firm known as Altamont Capital Partners. What's notable about Altamont Capital Partners is that they are the owners of Sequel Youth and Family Services. At one time, Sequel operated up to 44 for-profit foster care facilities across 19 states. And these facilities have been accused of everything, from child abuse and neglect to enabling the sexual assault of minors committed by both staff and fellow residents. To this day, Altamont Capital Partners continues to be both the owner of Sequel Youth and Family Services and at least co-owner of Alamo Draft House. What you are doing here is to discuss a group of people brought together by bad people that were either bad people themselves or were good people that stopped giving a shit about bad people. Yeah, this is when we talk about this thing just being rotten from from the head down, like it is this. There's nothing that this company could be involved in that isn't terrible. With the many allegations of sexual misconduct that would ultimately destroy Ain't It Cool News in 2017, it's difficult to see very many positives. That said, there are still some victories that are worth acknowledging all the same. The first and most immediate one is that the women who came forward and made their stories public or otherwise 
by and large, were believed by most people within the Austin film community. According to C. Robert Cargill, this was something many of these women did not assume would be the case. I know of six allegations, five of them are friends of mine, and each one of them I had to ask, why didn't you share this with me, why didn't you tell me? And every single one of them said the same thing, I didn't know who you would side with. It's important to note that all of these news stories about Harry Knowles' sexual misconduct and the reckless way it was handled at the Alamo Draft House happened in the middle of Fantastic Fest, a film festival that was created by both of these entities. Some people wanted to boycott the festival. Other people went as far as to demand that Fantastic Fest be shut down for good. Then, according to Cargill, there was another group who saw this moment as a rallying point for both the festival and the community to redefine its identity as well as its core values. It was one of the hardest you know, periods in Austin film history is that Fantastic Fest where we were all crying and we were all hearing, sharing each other's stories and, 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 and listening. And it was really, really hard. The, the whole of the community stood by the women and I'm really proud to be part of that community. My, my wife ended up writing a big blog post about why we needed to save Fantastic Fest and why it was important as a woman to show up. You know, she goes, I really want to boycott this year like many of you and say, I don't stand by this. But if I do, then my voice doesn't count. It doesn't matter. Fantastic Fest is mine. I'm part of Fantastic Fest. I've been here since year one. I'm not going away. And then a bunch of women said, holy shit, yeah, me too. And so the women who were going to boycott instead showed up in mass and um, were well and, and were brought in as the community. Like, yeah, you are the community. You aren't also here. You are here. You, you know, we are with you. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done in this regard, but in a lot of ways, the Austin film community at the very least began the work to shift its perspective on the threat of sexual harm in movie geek culture. And that shift in perspective went beyond the city of Austin. Back in California, Jasmine Marriott read Kate Erbland's news stories of the multiple women who were willing to speak out against Harry Knowles. She says it's because of those stories and the women who were brave enough to share them that Jasmine was able to realize what happened to her in 2004 was no longer her fault. The bravery of these women also helped Jasmine to redefine her experience using words she never considered until recently. When I'm talking to my friends, you know, who were there and they're like, no, no, you were, he sexually harassed you and he sexually assaulted you and he used you. You genuinely were friends with him. You generally wanted a friendship with him and you know, you didn't want that. Whether or not he interpreted it the other way is not your responsibility. When you made it clear through your body language, that should have been enough for him to figure out that you didn't want that. Going back to King Kong, many people have varying ideas of what the movie is about. I think it's about the relationship America has with monsters. It's about how our culture makes monsters, and in some cases, even puts them on a pedestal for people to worship or admire. And once the monster has been deemed a threat, the movie King Kong shows that we are more than eager as a society to jump into our planes so that we can convince ourselves, if only for a moment, that we can fly above the monster and take it down. That's exactly what happened on social media once the allegations against Harry Knowles went live. There were people who reacted with justified anger and demands that Harry apologize and or be held accountable for his behavior. 
But there was another contingent who exploited this outrage for their own ends. These bad actors came at Harry on social media with comments that made fun of his weight and the ramifications of his disability. Oftentimes with the same hateful tone and demeanor talkbackers used when they disagreed with Harry's review of movies. For Brenda Cosman, reactions like this exemplify the greatest paradox of the Me Too movement and its relationship with social media. So even though Me Too was social media driven and that's what gave it its, you know, its power of showing the pervasiveness here, um, you know, Twitter is not a place to have engaged, balanced discussion. And it's certainly not a place um, to decide someone's uh, legal culpability. You know, the only place I think we still do get some thoughtful engagement is in the realm of serious investigative journalism. And, but the problem is social media is increasingly drowning that out. It's because of that lack of balance or engagement that leads us to this next problem. While our culture makes monsters and is more than happy to destroy them, we have little interest in trying to understand how our actions and mindsets create them, or more importantly, what we can do to prevent the next monster from harming more people. Case in point, in the final act of King Kong, an entertainment producer named Carl Denham, played by actor Robert Armstrong, manages to capture the giant ape from his home in Skull Island. Denham then chains Kong to the stage of his theater in the middle of New York City, where people gawk at and admire him. Reporters even take his picture. Don't be alarmed, ladies and gentlemen. Those chains are made of chrome steel. Then suddenly, King Kong breaks free. The giant monkey rampages across the city before climbing to the top of the Empire State Building, where he is then shot down for his fall back to Earth. What's troubling about all this is that after this death and destruction, no one holds Carl Denham accountable. He should be in handcuffs. Instead, he walks free and able to give the final, most quotable line in the entire oh, no. movie. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. Sure, it's a nice line. However, it's also a simplification that was clearly intended to make the person who said it feel smart about himself and devoid of responsibility. In the case of Harry Knowles, Carl Denham certainly represents the Alamo Draft House. I would also argue that the character represents all of us. The many men, and sometimes women, who are ready and eager to fire off pithy shots from our comfortable perches via social media. The problem is we do this while having no interest in examining our own behavior or the role we play in maintaining this culture that makes so-called monsters like Harry Knowles. This is what Mark Roma encountered when he pondered the culpability of this community when the allegations against Harry Knowles went public. If we owned the community, if it was our community, then we also owned how it may have hurt people. And... Um, yeah. I, I don't hear anybody saying that. I haven't ever heard anybody saying that. And like I said, when I tried to say it, I literally had people say, you know, uh, you need to get out of here. Don't, you know, I was in a Facebook group where people were talking about their feelings and all that stuff. And I literally had somebody tell me, just uh, get out of here. I don't want to ever talk to you again. In the end, Harry Knowles stands publicly accused of sexual assault as well as sexual harassment. Additionally, multiple people who frequented the chat room of Ain't It Cool News including former Ain't It Cool News writer Alan Cerny, verify that Harry Knowles used his influence 
over his own community to turn them against Jasmine Marriott. I am by no means a legal expert, but of the accusations that were officially made public, it would appear that none of them meet the threshold for criminal charges. That said, for a person whose very livelihood depends on the perceptions of online culture, Harry Knoll's career as a webmaster, internet movie news maven, and proto-influencer were all but finished. Harry's relationship with the Alamo Drafthouse was immediately severed, thus ending Buttnumathon after 18 years of existence. And without an apology, admission of wrongdoing, or an attempt to make amends to the women who came forward, Harry Knowles would publicly announce that he would be stepping down from his role at Ain't It Cool News. On Facebook, someone asked Harry Knowles what he intended to do after stepping down. He responded by saying, Therapy, detox, and getting to a better place. Whatever that means. Additionally, Harry said that his sister Danny Knowles would be left in charge to run the site in his absence while he sought help. In our next installment, we will explore what transpired behind the scenes during this attempt at an all-women reboot of Ain't It Cool News, allegedly without Harry Knowles. We will also explore what would become of the many lives of the contributors who were previously tangled in this once massively popular website, as well as the lessons we can take away from the story of the site, its creator, and the controversy that brought both of them down. So join us then for the final installment of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News. A couple of quick notes here. Via Facebook Messenger, Harry Knowles denies Drew McQueenie's allegation that Harry Knowles cupped his hand on Drew Scrotum, even within the context of a joke. Harry also claims to have no memories of ever meeting Jasmine Marriott in person. Thinking of you of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, titled Hey Bells, was written, narrated, and edited by Joe Scott. It was executive produced by Christina Bell, with production and sound engineering by Eddie Garcia. Editorial assistance by Aaron Poitras, production assistance by Abrar Mubashar, as well as online production by Janessa Smith. It features Ben Jones as the voice of Harry Knowles, AJ Schrader as James Gunn, Jake Stewart as Devin Faraci, Cabell Wilkins as Caroline, John Chenoweth as Todd Brown, Kristen Korkowski as Jen, and Jasmine O'Connell as Diane. Music credits include original theme and other songs by Chester Enders Biguazda, as well as additional songs by Sayuri Hayashi Egnall, Enide, Kabi Kasta, Christian Anderson, John Bjork, Ethan Sloan, Dasin, Mimai, Mike Franklin, Max Anson, Lemati, Farrell Wooten, and Chalalatas. If you like this show, first off, thanks a lot. Second, let other people know that by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's a huge help in terms of helping other listeners find out about us. Download The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News is produced by Mixtape Media. Make sure to visit our website at downloadpod.com. That's download with a W instead of an A, pod as in podcast.com. 
There you can read show notes, ask a question, or even leave a message that can be played on the air. We'll be back in two weeks with a final chapter in this story. So join us then to dial up, log on, and download. Files done. Goodbye.